Thanks for your patience. It's great to be with you. The assignment that I was given was building a God-focused ministry. Now, I need somebody with authority to tell me when I'm supposed to stop because I can talk all afternoon on this. And so somebody tell me my deadline, okay? Who, who's here to do that? 2.30. Okay, 45 minutes roughly. I'll, I'll holler at me if I get carried away and don't stop. Let's pray and uh, ask God to come. Before we pray, though, I, I want to find out just a little bit about you. Two questions. How many of you work in church ministries? Raise your hand. Your local church per- people. And then student ministries? Raise your hand. Forget, looks like about half and half. So I clearly come from a church situation and and uh, am influenced by that. But you'll have to adapt what I say to where you are. Let's pray. Father, I love your people and I love those who have given their lives to minister to the body of Christ for holiness and for joy and for hope and faith and radical lay down your life kind of loving obedience. And so I pray, Father, that you would help them, strengthen them. And I believe that you want our ministries to be radically Godward saturated with you, drawing people's attention continually to you, magnifying you, enjoying you, treasuring you, prizing you above all things. And so would you please, of all the things, Lord, that I might say from your word and from my experience, would you filter out that which is least helpful and confirm in my mind and in my desires what would be most helpful so that we are made more able to get attention for you, to magnify the way telescopes magnify in our ministries. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. Well, there's my talk. It's on a piece of paper. And uh, there's 11 points on this piece of paper. So I want to um, talk about all 11 if there's time. But if there's not, then, then uh, in heaven we'll talk about them. Point number one, these are all how do you build a God-focused or God-centered or Godward ministry. And the first one is believe that God is relevant in himself for people's lives. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. Um, Often in... Preaching, I read things that say to the effect, um, well, after you've given some doctrine, then get practical. Then use illustrations and get down to where people are. And I've never felt comfortable with that because that's not the way my life has worked. My life since my early college days and probably if I had a better memory, my early teen days, has been most practically affected by altered views of God without any particular illustrations. And here's an illustration of what I mean. <laughs> Give me an illustration. <laughs> in the early 80s, in our church, there was a week. It was prayer week, early January. Little did I know that three daughters in one of the families of our church were sexually abused for a long time by a a wider family member than the husband or wife. This had been going on for a long time. And that week, they discovered it. And it was awful. Now, I didn't know this uh, yet. I was to find out in a week. That January... Prayer week, I resolved that I was going to put to the test the practicality of the glory of God for himself. So I chose Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And above him were the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two they flew, with two they covered their feet. And what were the other two for? Their eyes. And uh, 
One cried to the other, Holy, 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 the Lord God. The whole earth is full of your glory and the threshold shook and the house was filled with smoke. I just took that as my text and tried to unpack every phrase in it and say not a word of why this is relevant to anybody about marriage or about money or about sex or about job or about anything. And closed the service and it was glorious. Well, then I found out about this. This couple was sitting there in the congregation, having just learned three or four days before this horrendous news, which is still this many years later wreaking havoc in their lives. And uh, when I found out, I wondered how they heard that. And about two months later, can't remember exactly now, the husband came to me. And he said, these have been the absolute worst months of our lives. And I want you to know that prayer week sermon has been the rock we've been able to stand on. And then in the same vein, there was a man named Merlin Aronson who had multiple sclerosis. He wheeled himself around and he had an electric wheelchair in our church. Everybody knew Merlin. He was very active about making sure we got handicap access and everything. And he had a lot of influence in the church and he was a great man. And his wife, Marlis, is still at the church. One morning, we had two services. Between the two services, I hear this scuffle outside. I'm back praying, get my heart ready. And uh, it's now uh, 1030. It's time for me to walk in the second service. And I walk out, head in, and somebody comes up and says, Merlin just fell off his chair downstairs and the uh, ambulance is coming. They think he had a heart attack. And I didn't know what to do. Should I go downstairs? And somebody says, the deacon say, look, we've got this. Go ahead. Just pray as you get in there. Tell people what's happening. And uh, and just before I go in, I find out, they say, he's dead. He's dead. Merlin's dead. So I walked in there, waited till the prelude was over. Uh, kind of broke in, called the people to pray, and we prayed for Marlis now, who's in the ambulance heading down to MMC a few blocks away. And I'm wondering, what do I do here? What do I do? Because my term and text that morning was Malachi 1.5. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. On the sovereignty of God in election. <laughs> real, real relevant if your husband just dropped dead, right? I said, well, Lord, I don't know what else to do. I don't feel given anything else. I will preach this with all that's in me because if it's true, it blesses. So I, we go through the service. There's kind of a heaviness on the service, but people sing in an unusual way. And I launch in. This is a half an hour after he died. And in the balcony, Marlis Aronson walks in. The wife. Back from the hospital. I said, what? I just said to myself, what is she doing here? She's supposed to be down there. Her husband is dead at the hospital. She walks in and sits by the door. And so I just went ahead and preached on election and the absolute glorious, great, sovereign God who does what he pleases in the world without checking in with us at all about how to run the world. And afterwards, I just was wondering, what is she going to say? Would she disappear? So I'm at the door where I always stood. And when everybody was almost gone, she came up and gave me the biggest, heavy, tearful hug you can imagine. And she said, I just had to come back and get some word. And it was so good. So, you know, when you have enough of those experiences... You uh, you don't worry too much about the relevance of the God-centeredness of a ministry. That's point number one. Believe that it's relevant. Number two, pray for your people the way Jesus taught you to pray and the way Paul taught you to pray. What I mean is, you tell me, what is the first Request that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. 
Our Father, not a request. It's a, what's the first request? Hallowed be thy name. That's, that's a third person imperative in Greek. It's a request. I used to think the first three, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that would be done, were sort of worshipful ascriptions. And then you got down to asking for bread and deliverance. That's not the case. Those are all requests. The sermon on, I mean, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer requests. The first prayer for your people in ministry is, Father, cause them to hallow your name. Move on my people that they would hallow your name. I got up this morning in my room, 828, over in this hotel, yeah, and pulled the curtains back and looked out across Austin and I said, Father, Make your name hallowed in this place. Hallowed, cherished, loved, glorified, honored, set aside as infinitely valuable. Let that happen. Make that happen. Cause that to happen in this place. You gotta pray that for your people if you want a God-focused ministry. Or, take Paul's prayer. The reason this one's on my mind is because I took it as a text at our New Year's Eve service. Was that yesterday? I've, I've lost track. I'm, this is Austin, so it must be the 2nd of January. That text says, From the day we heard of your faith and love, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, pleasing the Lord in everything, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you pray for your people that they would steadily increase in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed general, sweeping, broad prayers over whole churches. I think sometimes we feel like we're not praying authentically unless we name somebody, have an individual and a specific request, a healing or a relationship that's got to get fixed. Paul didn't pray that way ever in the New Testament, seems like. All of the prayers that are recorded are big, broad, general, sweeping, glorious prayers. Memorize them. It'll change your prayer life. But my point here is simply, if you want your people to be God-focused in ministry, then you need to pray that they would be God-focused in ministry. Pray that they would be filled with God. So that's point number two. Number three, portray God as he really is in your teaching. Portray him as he really is. I brought along a quote here that stunned me a few years ago from uh, Charles Meisner, who is a scientific specialist in general relativity theory and a specialist in the thought of Albert Einstein. And he said this about Albert Einstein. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. That's what really struck me, because I'm a preacher. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. So here's an unbeliever who had seen so much of God, he thought, in his scientific explorations of the universe, that when he went to church, they weren't talking about the real thing. I mean, does that make you scared that your ministry might be puny? That your ministry might be talking about something that an unbeliever would say, excuse me, I thought this was about God. And we're talking about our little how to get along with whatever, how to make it, how to handle our appetites, or just just always little, little teeny stuff. 
and hardly ever taking God into account. So my, my third point is portray the true God. Now let me be practical there for just a minute and tell you how you might work at that. There are not many books to help you in this. How almost nobody writes about God today. Nobody. Because publishers don't want it. I fight publishers to the death. Oh, you gotta add some illustrations here. You gotta do it this way. You gotta do it this way. People don't read about God. They read about their problems. You gotta touch their felt needs, et cetera, et cetera. And you fight and you slog and then they let you do it as best you can. So you're not gonna get much help. You gotta go back about 300 years if you want help. The Puritans wrote about God. And I advise all of you to get The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. Published by Baker, still, I believe. And uh, you can't, I mean, it'll take you about 10 years to read it. It has me, because it's the kind of book that you only read two, three pages at a time. That's the way I read it. It's still sitting there. I have not read the whole thing. I've been working at it for years, years I've been at it. And I underline it and I mark it. It's the kind of book that he preached to his congregation 350 years ago in a sustained way that talks about about you know, 180 pages on the goodness of God, then 200 pages on the uh, knowledge of God, then 300, it's two volumes of about 600 pages each, and it's all about God, not our problems. And it is rich. Stephen Charnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K, Puritan from Scotland, and uh, the book is The Existence and Attributes of God. It's not the only book, almost... I mean, get familiar with the banner of truth, trust, publisher, and then you'll have an access to the Puritans as they're being reissued today. And there are other authors. I mean, Tozer, you don't have to go back. Tozer specialized in this. J.I. Packer's Knowing God is a good flavor of this. R.C. Sproul would be in this train of people. So... Portray God. That's number three. Number four. Show your people that everything is superficial without God as the center of it, no matter how intellectual or academic it is or scientific. Everything is superficial that does not have God at the center of it. Now, There's a big university here in town, right? Many, many scholars at the university probably who don't care anything about God and who spend their lives working on academic pursuits in philosophy and psychology and literature and anthropology and history and the hard sciences and so on. And they would be appalled, of course, if they heard me say this. They would just laugh up their sleeve to say that their work is superficial. And it's very simple, though, that if there is a God who ruled all things, who rules all things, made all things, understands all things, and for whom, as Paul says, all things exist, so that the true meaning of all things is in their relationship to him and his originating them, sustaining them, and his purpose for them, to the degree that you leave out that, you become superficial. Because superficiality is defined as treating something without reference to its main Purpose. I mean, if you can deal with something without reference to its main origin, its main sustaining power, and its main reason for being, you're a superficial dealer in that reality. No matter what you talk about, how much knowledge you know about the details of its inner working, all that's superficial if the whole thing is hanging in midair relating falsely to everything. Now here's here's the example that I read in a book called Biblical in a magazine called Biblical Counseling just this week. Um, David Paulinson, who's a very good writer, I believe, about biblical counseling in uh, Philadelphia, he he said, uh, take the old story of the five men and the elephant who are blind. You remember the story? What is this? Oh, that's a big leaf. And what is this? Well, that must be a tree. It's got the leg of the elephant. What is this? To the side of the elephant. Oh, I, that must be a wall. And what is this at the end? This is a rope. What is this at the front? Well, it's a boa constrictor. 
So these blind guys, he said, that's really not quite the case the way it is in the university or the science world. Um, they, they can see, but they have a severe astigmatism and can only see when they're looking like this. And so they are incredibly good at seeing the little teeny bugs that infest the folds of the elephant knee. So this elephant has skin that folds over and it gets cruddy and little slimy bugs grow in there and they see them and they analyze them and they name them and they figure when they come and when they go. And if you prick it, they say this tree bleeds red sap. They write essays about red sap and, and how strange it is that unexplainably the sap pulsates. No other trees except this tree with the gray bark and the bugs has pulsating red sap. And so they know lots. And we Christians who aren't scientists say, we're about 60 yards away. We don't know anything about those knees. We don't know anything about those bugs. But we say, it's an elephant. It's an elephant. It's not a tree. It's an elephant. Get it. <laughs> That's a more helpful illustration than the, the blind scientist. It's superficial to say, I know more about red sap than you do. I know more about the folds in the gray bark than you do. I know more about the pulsating of this strange sap than you do. I know more about these little critters who live in this hot, moist, dark fold when they think it's a tree. It's an elephant. The universe is an elephant. It's God's elephant. And until you get that, everything is superficial. Now, you can you can do that with your people in a hundred ways. I did it with spelling a few years ago. My son, Ben, was an awful speller. We didn't discover until the 10th grade that he had a dyslexic problem. And wish we had learned a lot earlier. But in those days, uh, in school, I was talking to educators and, and, uh, some who were not all that big on weaving God into everything they did, including spelling. And I said, and you know, spelling has to do with God. And they'd look at me and say, oh, yeah, right. There's a Christian spelling. Yeah. How do Christians spell cat? <laughs> And that's the way God-centeredness is treated by a lot of people. If you come at them and say, God has to do with algebra and he has to do with anthropology and he has to do with philosophy and he has to do with, 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 uh, anything, it's a, right. So there's a, a Christian trigonometry. Ha. And you smirk and, and dismiss the whole thing with a little smirk. That's because they have only thought superficially about reality. I said, in school, when you're teaching, uh, Spelling. What if a kid raises his hand? Now, this is not, I'm not making this up here. He says, what do I care about this spelling stuff? What are you going to say? What, what are you teacher going to say? Well, you might say, uh, look, if you don't spell like everybody else spells, if you don't get on board and join, you know, the common spelling way and do it and not do it your own way, then you're not going to be able to communicate. What do I care about communicating? Then what are you going to say? This is, this is what, this is what teachers need to do. They don't just say it C-A-T, write it down, learn it. You gotta, you gotta help students figure out why they should do it. So why should I care about communicating? Now, you got a Christian answer to that question and you got a world question answer. The world would say, well, look, if you don't communicate, you're not going to make any money. You're not going to get a good job. You're going to make a fool of yourself and your your self-esteem is going to plummet. So those, are, those are three good godless answers. But if you're a Christian and you believe God relates to everything, I'm just illustrating how you need to talk in your ministries. If God relates to everything, you you might say you, you're not going to get a good job, but you, you might want to start by saying, you know, it, it might be. Rebellion against God and pride in your own heart that makes you unwilling to submit yourself to the way this word is spelled in the world. 
And it might be that you need to realize that God created language. It's for him. And uh, he has brought great blessing into the world through communication. In fact, do you not have the most precious reality in the world to communicate, namely Jesus Christ and his faith? And, and on and on the answers could go. You see, in, in education, and I mean any level of education from the littlest to the university, as soon as you get one millimeter below the surface, you're into worldview issues. And God becomes either central or neglected. So non, point number four is show that everything is superficial unless God is at the center. Number five, cultivate the doctrinal, biblical conviction of God's sovereignty in, and I've got one, two, three, four, five, six things which I could talk for an hour on each one about, but let's see how short I can keep this. What I'm saying here under this fifth point is you got to have a doctrinal foundation and the foundation of the sovereignty of God will do more to keep your ministry Godward and God-focused than anything else. So here are my illustrations of this. Persuade your people and teach your people, and of course you don't believe it, you can't do that, so first get yourself persuaded of the sovereignty of God in conversion. The Lord opened Lydia's heart that she might give heed to the gospel. God did that. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. God did that. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called... The wisdom of God and the power of God, that effectual call that makes it real. So conversion is a work of God. I, I find that even, you know, people who don't know a zip about Calvinism or Arminianism. And here you talk about the sovereignty of God in conversion or wherever you're talking about it and come up and say, wow, this is hard. I, what about free will, etc." If you just ask them, how'd you get saved? Tell me about it. Tell me about it. They wind up. Talking like Calvinists. They wind up saying, I had one girl just so angry at me after one sermon. And she lived just a few blocks down from where I live. So I said, let's walk home together. And on the bridge, walking home, I said, tell me about your conversion. And she said, she's, she's about this tall. She's about 6'2 or something. So uh, when she was growing up, it wasn't easy to be that tall as a you know 13-year-old girl who's six feet tall. Um, she, she said, you know, when I was growing up, it was really hard. And, um, my folks were sort of nominal believers and I knew about the gospel from a youth group I went to and didn't know if I wanted to believe it because I didn't know if God loved me. And, and one day I was walking home from school and uh, some girls from across the street started calling me names. She got real teary at this moment. She started calling me names because of how tall and skinny I was. And, uh, suddenly she said, I didn't care because I felt like God loved me. And from that moment, she said, I think I've been a Christian. Something happened. I said, I think that I believe that. I agree with that. Do you do that? Did you decide to do that? Did you decide at that moment not to feel broken and hurt and crushed? Or did God do that? And she she was real silent the rest of the way across the bridge because she saw I, you know, you don't you don't have to beat people up with doctrine. You you, you present the truth and then you, you, you draw out the truth from their own experience. If people are born of God, they know God. They know God. They might have some screwy ideas about what he's like and how he works, but you can help draw them out. Conversion, sanctification. Dave over here and I were talking on the way over about the difficulty of dealing with the sovereignty of God in sanctification, harder than justification, harder than election, harder than final glorification, is our own progress in becoming holy, and that God is sovereign in that. And yet you got to teach the people he is, because if he isn't sovereign there, he's just not sovereign. If, if, if God drops the ball day after day in your life, this is, oh, I can't handle your life. I just can't handle your sin. I can't handle your bent towards pride. I can't handle your bent towards lust. I just don't know what to do. I am utterly perplexed. If God's talking like that, I'm out of here. 
I'm out of here. So God clearly is in charge of my life. I say clearly not because it's some logical thing, but because the new covenant means that. I will put my law in your minds and write them on your hearts and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the new covenant. Hebrews 13, 21. Uh, now unto the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead to the one who gives, may, may he give you all things that you need to do his will working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So David, no final solutions here yet, but God's sovereignty means that if I goof up this afternoon, he has suffered me to fall, willed me to fall, that is, withheld sanctifying graces from me for some ultimately good purpose. And probably, here's one that I hang on to, lest I blame him and get mad at him. That's the great danger I struggle with, is I get mad at God that I don't become a better husband. I was praying with my little prayer group over there before I spoke. And got all teary-eyed because what the Lord brought to my mind to pray for was that I'd be a more tender husband in 1997. There's so much anger that wells up inside of me with certain things in my own house. And when anger wells up, there's a hardness that comes into your relationship. And when there's hardness, you can't be tender. When there's no tenderness, you can't communicate. When you can't communicate, everything goes. And so I was praying, Lord God, please let this be a year where Noel and I experience more tenderness, more warmth, more softness towards one another. And I don't get so angry about things. I think the Lord, I've been married 28 years. <laughs> 28 years I've been working on this. And all I know is, this is what you're going to talk about tonight, I presume, is he keeps me broken by the slowness of my sanctification. He could do it another way. He could snap his finger and I'd be the most tender man in the world. Just like this. Today, I'd be a sinless person. If God wanted to make me sinless, he could make me sinless. He'll do it when I die. If he could do it when I die, he could do it now. I mean, it's just a matter of time, right? So he must have a reason for letting me stumble along in my struggle to trust him. And one of the reasons is so that I will never, ever, ever think I can get along without the cross. I think I can get along without the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's two, conversion, sanctification, the sovereignty of God in perseverance. On my mother's grave, Greenville, South Carolina, my dad and I agreed would be the words from 1 Peter 1, 5, kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. Now, that's not a reference to dead people in the context. It's a reference to living people. Kept from sin, kept from unbelief, kept from apostasy. The reason any of you will be a Christian tomorrow morning when you get up is God. Not you. It's not your free will or not anything like that. You will be a Christian when you get up tomorrow morning. You will have an inclination to pray and read your Bible and trust him because he's on you and in you and working and keeping. Jeremiah 32:40. Get that verse into your people. That, that's a new covenant verse. I will not turn away from doing them good and I will put the fear of me in their heart and will not let them turn from me. So where's your assurance and your perseverance? It's in God, not in a decision. Oh, I just drive this again and again with my people because American evangelicalism is so decisionistic that all we can think of is, I prayed the prayer when I was six or at a Billy Graham crusade or at a BSU meeting and I must be safe because I believe in eternal security and I prayed the prayer and they don't have any sense that God's doing it, that God's doing it, that I will put the fear of you in me and daily I will work on you in all your stumbling and up and down to keep you coming back to me. That's God's work. The sovereignty of God in perseverance. The sovereignty of God in the small affairs of life. Psalm 1633, the lot is cast in the lap 
And every decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice in Las Vegas is from the Lord. Or the big things of life. Daniel 2.21. He raises up kings and he puts down kings. Or the sovereignty of God in suffering. If your people... Now, this is, this is something I've been thinking of real scary recently. When suffering comes, horrible, horrible, horrible suffering, unspeakable suffering. A man in our church whose son fell into a grain elevator and, and they have these huge thing, augers. <laughs> Just killed him. And, uh, I mean, it's been 10, 15 years now since that happened. And if I was a dad, I think I'd wake up every night picturing that moment as an auger cut my son in half, my 25-year-old son. I mean, that's happened right now, folks, this minute. Now, the reason I say that is because most of the people in my church, I think, trusting God and loving God. But if they saw something like that happen, did you read about that little one-year-old baby who was decapitated by the airbag? Picture it, mom. Just picture it. I mean, just like you want to scream. She bumps in a parking lot at five miles an hour. Bump. And her baby's in a, a baby chair with a back right here. And this thing hits the baby in the face 120, 180 miles an hour and knocks his head off. Kills the baby, decapitates the baby at, at the mother's right hand. Now, almost every single human being at that moment is going to cry out, God, where are you? Now, how do you get your people ready for that moment? I think of my ministry most in those terms, getting my people ready for those moments. A theology, a vision of God that can handle those moments. Now, you can do the Rabbi Kirshner thing and say, he, he didn't want it to happen. He didn't have anything to do with it. He was on vacation. Or like, what, what prophet was it that said, he's going to the bathroom. He was going to the bathroom. Rather, we must, we must be able to say what Job said. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? Or the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know what he was responding to when he said that. Ten kids. And it probably wasn't pretty when the wind brought the ceiling down on them and crushed them. They were probably cut in half. Their heads were cut off. It was horrible. They may have screamed for half an hour until they died. And he said, the Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Satan has a place in that. Mind you, study the first two chapters of Job to get Satan in his proper place. He's there. He's ugly. He's mean. He's cruel. He's doing lots. But he's on a leash, folks. And God can pull it anytime he wants. My mother was killed in a car accident outside Bethlehem in Israel because she and my dad were leading a, a bus tour of pilgrims into Bethlehem, December 16, 1974, and a van load of drunk Israeli soldiers come around a corner, swerve, hit the bus head on, and on top of this van are a pile of four-by-fours that become 50-mile-an-hour missiles. And, and my mother got it in the head. And I got the phone call eight hours later or so. And uh, my brother-in-law said, your mother was killed in a bus accident and your dad took it in the back and they don't think he's going to make it. No, are you ready? Are you ready? Here's what I did. I hung up the phone, told Noel, my little two-year-old, Bart Karsten, said, Mom, he's dead. And I'm not sure daddy's going to make it. And I went back and knelt down and cried the evening through. Just cried it through. But God never once, by his grace, let me doubt him and his goodness. I wrestled for the life of my dad, and he gave him to me. And I thanked him for my mother's faith. And I said, Lord, if you can't control the flight of a four-by-four, I can't worship. I mean, it's a piece of cake. All If God can, if if Jesus can stand up in a boat and say, peace, be still, and the wind stops, he can go on the side of a van. 
and misses the bus. I mean, can he? Of course he can. So either we give up and say God is not loving and he's not real, or we say he is sovereign in suffering. So that was point number five. And I've got six minutes left for all these other points. Let's see here. I'll take them faster. Tell stories about God-besotted people. Tell stories about God-besotted people. Read biography. Read, read, read articles like this from Christianity Today. Do you remember seeing this thing by, by Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, the missionary who got killed in Ecuador 50 years ago this year, last year, <laughs> 96? Read this, and when you get to this page, stop and wonder. Here is the son of a man who was killed with nine-foot spears, writing 50 years after with these words, because of new data that had come to his mind by discussing the matter with his father's killers. Here's what he wrote. As they described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing, that was the name of the little place where it happened, how unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. I read that the first time I said, I didn't read that right. It can't have been what he wrote. That's the opposite of what he wrote. Americans don't say that. Let me read it again. See if you heard it right. As they described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was, unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing, my dad, by a nine-foot spear, took place at all. It's an anomaly. I cannot explain it outside of divine intervention. God killed my dad. Tell stories about God-besotted people who are so consumed with the reality of God, everything is questionable but God. Instead of joining the American culture where God is questioned for everything. I say everything is questionable but God. Number seven, model Authentic worship, Bible saturation, wartime lifestyle, prayer as the visible engine of your ministry, and love as the evidence of his all-sufficiency in your life. Now, I got comment. Yes, I will. In fact, I got lots to say about each one and one minute or so to do it. Model those things. Number one, authentic worship. And what I mean by that is whether you're a worship leader or not, everybody's watching you. Do you worship or do you prepare your notes getting ready for your talk during worship? Ooh, I want to knock the blocks of pastors off when I go to their churches sometimes and their poor worship leader is doing his best to help these people get connected with the living God for 20 or 30 minutes and he's up there flipping through his notes. If that isn't the worst possible example to set so authentically worship, let your people see you connected connected. Let them see in you that he matters in your life more than your talk matters. Number two, um, Bible saturation. You need to memorize the Bible, folks. Not the whole thing, though a few people have done that. I've heard in Ripley's Believe It or Not. But a lot of it, a lot of it, your people see that. They'll know whether you're in the word. By whether it oozes. You know, Spurgeon used to say about the Puritans, you you prick them, they bleed Bible. Do you bleed Bible? Or do you have to constantly open your Bible up, you know, like I did? I couldn't I couldn't get the verse right a minute ago because I hadn't reviewed that. We we just started a big Bible memory program in our church for everybody and uh, a passage a week. And we're challenging everybody in our church to learn 52 passages in 1997 because we believe that the devil comes down with the sword of the spirit unless you wield it well. So the Bible is the word of God. And so saturate your life with 
God's word and then you'll be a God word leader. Third, a wartime lifestyle. If you look like everybody else, if you've got to have the biggest house in the suburbs and have the nicest car and have the biggest and fattest retirement program and wear the nicest, most up-to-date clothing, and they see that, forget it. You're just kind of cultivating more of the American way. Just kind of adding Christianity on to what's there. Don't change it. Don't call it into question. Just stick it on, and uh, we'll be happy with you. But if you call into question our lifestyle by your lifestyle, then you're just making God too awkwardly central. I say wartime lifestyle as opposed to simple lifestyle. Because in a war you need B-52 bombers. And they cost $500 million. And you don't make that kind of money raising carrots in northern Minnesota. Immediately is wonderful. And email is no simple thing. And yet it's the most... Glorious gift given to missionaries in the last five years, I think, what we communicate right now with and are able to pray for immediately is wonderful. Prayer, make it the visible engine. We talk about the visible engine. It, there's a, a, an engine when it's running has a purr to it. Can people hear the engine that runs your ministry? Can they hear it? Or is it always just tucked out of the way? Uh, Opening prayer, closing prayer. That's not it, folks. Opening in prayer and closing in prayer is not it. Saturating in prayer, seasons of prayer, lingering in prayer, fasting in prayer, so that they know this person is desperate for God. And then love as an evidence of God's all-sufficiency in your life. The reason you can love with no strings attached and laying down your life late at night, up early, energy poured out is because God is all to you. And my time is up. I'll just mention the last three so you know what they were. Oh, dear. This one's hard to just mention. Uh, really, you wave a red flag. There's three. It might take seven, eight minutes. It's okay? Okay. Num- number eight. Teach them that they cannot serve God and dare not lest they blaspheme. Explanation. Acts 17.25 God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. There is a kind of serving God that is blasphemy. Or take Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came... Not to be served. Period. Well, it isn't a period. It's a semicolon. But I, we, we need to put a period there and stop. Or don't, we don't hear it. We just jump to the next clause. But to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So, yes, he gave his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. But listen, he came not to be served. I find one of the most revolutionary things you can teach to people about God-centeredness is to say, watch out lest you serve God. Watch out lest you blaspheme by your Christian service. And they all, oh, what are you talking about? Paul called himself a servant in every epistle. And then you unpack those verses and you restructure the analogy. What does service of God mean? In a, How do you serve God in a God-word, God-centered way? And here are a few key texts. 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. Is that a philosophy of ministry or what? Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. The giver gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. If you think that you've got to muster it up to do it, you get the glory. If you are bankrupt, broken, helpless, weak, with an all-sufficient God, he's going to get the glory. you got to breed this mindset of the danger of serving God into your people so that they'll always be thinking, well, how can I lead a, a Bible study and how can I lead worship and how can I witness and how can I talk to my wife so that I'm not acting in my own strength? Or here's, a, here's one other text to help you in that. Um, 
Matthew 6:24 is it where it says no one can serve two masters for either will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other for you cannot serve God and money now ask yourself how do you serve money how do you serve money and the answer is not help money out meet money's needs the answer is you serve money by devoting energy and thought and time and effort and creativity to positioning yourself always to benefit from money. Thinking money. I want to benefit from money in this investment. I want to benefit from money in this speaking engagement. I want to benefit from money in this way of increasing the budget. I want to benefit from money in this purchase. Always structuring your life around how to benefit from money. And that's exactly the way you serve God. That's why you can't do both. Devoting energy and time, effort and creativity to always posturing yourself and maneuvering yourself so that you are under the blessing of God. Always benefiting from God. I picture God's grace. Future grace. Go to call it that. I call it that in my last book. As a waterfall of blessing just gorging and gushing out of the heart of God. But if you don't stand under the waterfall, it's not going to help you any. And the waterfall moves. I hope it moved to Austin last night. See, I was praying a year ago when the invitation came. Okay, I got a, I got a, a year end to live. I got a wife and three kids at home and two kids elsewhere and I got a church depending on me and I've got services on Sunday night and I mean Christmas night and services on New Year's Eve night and I got to preach next Sunday and I'm going to stay up all night. Is this Friday? Tomorrow's Friday. See, we have an all night prayer meeting tomorrow and I'll be up all night Friday. So I said, Lord, this is a dumb time to go to Austin. Really dumb. But I felt in my bones the waterfall's moving to Austin. You want to be under it? Go to Austin. That's the way I try to live my life. I just kind of, that's the service of God. Let him who serves serve under the waterfall so that the waterfall gets the glory for the saturation and the energizing. That was number eight. Number nine. I can't read it. Oh. Help your people transpose natural joys into spiritual joys. The transpose is a, is a musical term. You're going up a key here. Now, here's what I mean. I'm a Christian hedonist, and I believe that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and therefore the pursuit of our joy in God is essential if we're to glorify him. That's what I'm going to say tomorrow morning. And how? You push that in your ministry, that the pursuit of your joy in God, you know what's going to happen? People are going to come out of the woodwork to say, I don't experience God like that, and I don't think I'm wired that way. I relate to God differently than that. I, I, you talk like you know a real emotional person, and your personality is a certain way. I am not that way, and therefore, I don't think your theology even works for me. I remember a guy in our church, he's still there, who came to me 15 years ago and said essentially that. And so here's what I said. I'll name him Joe. He said, I, I just do not experience life that way. I'm not wired to experience joy and emotion the way you talk about it. And I said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Tell me, what? What's the most moving experience you've had in the last five years? Just anything at all. Sports, whatever. Just tell me anything. Something that really, really moved you. And he thought for a minute and he said, well, I remember a time in the Boundary Waters. This is in northern Minnesota, up there, where they don't allow any loud, noisy snowmobiles yet. And, uh, and we were camping, and the stars were so thick. And it was quiet. There wasn't a sound. And I was there with uh, my little boy and my wife. And that was awesome. I said, okay, all right. You can do it. I know you can. I've seen it now. Here's what I want you to do. 
Next time that happens, or even use your imagination to go back there, when that seemingly natural being moved gets in you, consciously transpose it up a key by saying, God made those stars. God made this child. God made this woman. God made this silence. All of this is screaming glory. Night under night pours forth knowledge. And tell yourself, preach yourself the truth that if this is precious, if this is moving, if this is glorious, if I can taste this on the tongue of my soul, how much more than the God who made it and loves me enough to give it to me freely tonight and then consciously transpose that joy up off of the night onto the God. Do that again and again and you will learn what it means to rejoice in God. So I commend to you, teach your people transposition. C.S. Lewis has got a sermon called Transposition in the, in the book called uh, The Weight of Glory. Last point. Turn off the television. Um, we don't have a television. Haven't had one in our marriage for 28 years, except when we borrow it to see some bowl games because of my 13-year-old's pressure, which we did. And that's where I increase in my conviction that we've done the right thing. I used to think back in the beginning of my life, before I had children and before I was in the ministry, that if I don't have a television, I grew up as an absolute TV addict. I watched three, four hours of TV every night. I did homework in front of TV. I ate in front of TV until I went away to college. And then I got weaned and slowly awoke from a dream, a numbing, desensitized incapacity to feel glory. My biggest problem with TV is not that you can go up in your room this afternoon and turn on hard sex. That's the name of one of the videos you could get. That's not my main issue, though that's a huge challenge to your sanctification here. My main issue is the absolute banality of it all. The silliness of it all. The small-mindedness of it all. So even if you're watching a supposedly good program, good program, You get interrupted over and over again with ads that are appealing to your lowest common denominator. They're titillating your sexual desires. They're tying into your covetousness. But mainly, they're just God neglecting. He's gone. He is gone, gone, gone out of the universe of TV. Or he is there in the most stupid Silly. Like in Princess Bride. How many of you have seen the video of the movie Princess Bride? All right. You mean, marriage, marriage. You know that, that awful clergyman. That's Christianity. That ugly guy who can't pronounce anything <laughs> is Christianity. But mainly, I just plead with you. I'm bearing witness of a weakness in my life here. I don't chew gum either. Now, this is really ridiculous. I do. If you give me a stick, I'll chew it. But you know why I don't buy gum? I chew all five sticks in five minutes. That's my personality. I have I have an addictive personality. When I taste something good, I want lots of it. So I just say, okay, if that's the way I'm wired, I better get focused on the right things. And when I go to visit my mother-in-law for four weeks and she has a TV, I watch a lot of it, mainly because I think I want to be educated, right? (laughs) You have got to realize that television is a numbing phenomenon. Anybody that can get up from two or three hours of television walk into their bedroom, kneel down, and have a mighty and powerful experience with the living God is an absolute spiritual superman. I can't do it, and therefore I want to meet God, and therefore I turn it off. Well, let me pray with you before we split. Father, these are just a few random thoughts, and there's so much more. And I confess that I'm on the way and not having arrived in any of these 11 observations. But Lord, please work them in me. 
Work them in me for my wife and children. Work them in me for my church and for these friends and work them in them for their ministries. And so get glory for yourself, I pray now. Satisfy our hearts in you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.